Welcome into another episode of Run for the Roses here on a Friday in late May. Ryan Bath Lucas joined by Lucas Rody. Lucas, we've started a tradition on the pod, and I feel like we have to keep it going. I didn't tell you about this in our show prep, but okay. how is Lucas's lawn doing? What's the update here? Where are we at? It's doing really, really well. So the last time we talked, we actually, me, and I should credit more my girlfriend, Hannah. I basically assisted her, but she basically put up a shed in the backyard. I kind of put some screws in and stuff like that. So we have, actually have a shed. Okay. Um, we have a lawnmower, stuff like that. I'm actually preparing to mow the lawn potentially this weekend for the first time. Um, but no, it's looking good. We actually got a ton of rain this week which was going to help. So it is looking um, very, very green. I'll have to uh, send you a before and after uh, text of what it looked like prior to when we got worked on it to what it looks now. It looks night and day. It actually looks like a, and we also uh, shout out to family members for housewarming gifts. We also got some patio furniture and a grill. So hopefully in the next week or so, I'll have my first uh, grill out. Here at the new house too. There we go. What what's weather like in Nashville this the, this time of year? Like late May, early June. Usually pretty warm. Uh, so like today it's actually pretty cool. It's like in the low seventies, but uh, generally we're in like the mid to upper eighties. Um, like last week, all weekend it was in the nineties uh, down here already and humid. So it's already starting to feel like summer. Uh, it's not Arizona May where it's. You guys, I know, are probably already in the hundreds, but uh, it's uh, it's definitely starting to get sticky and uh, and warm down here in the south. Yeah, it's a dry heat up. <laughs> Obviously, I feel like I say that all the time. Um, <laughs> it's uh, we we've had a, a nice little mixture. There have been days in, that have gotten in the hundreds for sure. The uh, last weekend was beautiful. It was in like that mid to high nineties, which for this time of year is, is really good. So mm-hmm. it's been a nice little start to summer, but I, I think the nineties, um, nineties temperatures are going away for us. Okay. So a lot to get to here on this episode <laughs> as we kind of continue our, our, our once a month ish recording schedule here in the off season, but there's not an off season in college football and the college football is turning into like a, a daytime TV drama. We, we have scandals, we have rivalries, we have backstabbings. I mean, it never a dull moment here in this sport, even though the games won't start for another like four months. So we're going to start by uh, discussing the Jimbo Fisher, Nick Saban beef that came up last week. Um, and then some news from the conferences, the Pac-12 eliminating divisions this year and looking like the Big Ten, the ACC on the way to eliminating divisions in 2023. We'll touch on that and how that could affect some conference championship races. Uh, first three weeks, TV times, networks uh, have been announced for the majority of games. Lucas and I will get into that, um, including a blistering 11 a.m. kickoff for Alabama and Texas on September 11th, <laughs> September 10th. And then finally, uh, Lucas had a, a really fun idea. We're going to look back at the 2018-2019 coaching cycle and give out some grades, discuss kind of what coaches – uh, were good hires, what we're kind of, we're still waiting to find out, who are, who are the disasters. So that's how we'll uh, wrap up the pod here on Running for the Roses. So, Lucas, let's start with, I, th- I think, some of the biggest, um, some some of the news that has dominated the headlines over the last week, and that is Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban 
the beef about NIL, and it started with Nick Saban addressing a crowd in Birmingham, Alabama. This was, I believe, a week ago Wednesday. He said, quote, we were second in recruiting last year. A&M was first. A&M bought every player on their team, made a, made a deal for them, made a deal for name, image, and likeness. We didn't buy one player. I don't know if we're going to be able to sustain that in the future because more and more people are doing it. Texas A&M fired back. Jimbo Fisher had a press conference the next day. He said, it's a shame we have to do this. It's really despicable. It's despicable. You're saying somebody can say things about somebody and, more importantly, 17-year-old kids. Uh, God, Barley's upset, too, about that. Goodness, Barley's fired <laughs> up, too. Uh, <laughs> Jimbo Fisher goes on to say, you're talking, you're taking shots at 17-year-old kids and their families. Yeah, that they broke state law that we bought every player on this group. We never bought anybody. No rules were broken. Nothing was done wrong. Texas A&M's AD had a press conference and did an interview, and he said that Nick Saban feels threatened by Texas A&M and tried to give that rationale. So, Lucas, kind of where do you kind of kind of stand on, on this situation and kind of what are your thoughts here on the uh, a nice little uh, rivalry between two former colleagues developing in the SEC West? Yeah, kind of like the rivalry developing between my two dogs right now as they <laughs> try to see who can who can bark the the loudest. But um, no, I just the the response one for it was just shocking for Saban one to come out really out of nowhere and just totally brash, not just uh, not just a fellow SEC coach, but a coach that had worked under him for years and from all parts had a very good relationship with and just totally, uh, you know, totally take apart the recruiting job that A&M had did basically saying that it was all cheating. Uh, and we had heard the rumors, you know, basically that you know, A&M had this 30 million, $25 million pot of NIL money that they were just throwing around to all these players. And I'm sure there is some legality to that, but um, just just the sheer fact that he kind of threw his his friend under the bus, and then Jimbo responding basically saying that he doesn't even want a relationship with Saban anymore. As fans, I love it because we know these two teams. Obviously, last year Jimbo was the first Saban assistant to take down Saban head to head before Kirby did it again in the national title game. But we know these two are going to play. These are probably going to be the two favorites in the SEC West. Um, and this is a big year for Jimbo. So obviously all the work he's done, he's going to fight for it, but I love it just as a, this is what college, why we love college football, because normally it's schools that we love rivalries too, but it's also these head coaches because <laughs> they're basically czars at their program. And when you attack their program, you're attacking that person, um, as well. So, um, I love it for, for the sake, whether it's true or not, I love it. Yeah, you know, this is it's 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 so interesting how these coaches are going about discussing NIL, right? Because I I think for the most part there was an understanding that throughout the last, you know, 3 4 decades, whatever it is, like the best players in recruiting were getting paid in mm-hmm. in some capacity, right? You you've had former players come out and say I got paid 30 grand to go here, right? We had the Cam Newton scandal where he was allegedly paid six figures to go to Auburn. Like it's, it's, it's not, it's a secret, but it's not really a secret. Right. Yeah. And now NIL has made essentially those deals legal. 
So for for Nick Saban to come out and I'm the thing that surprises me the most are that these coaches are willing to go out on the record publicly and say what they're saying. The fact that Nick Saban is willing to go out and tell people we have never bought players tells me two things: either there's a, a you know a one percent chance that that's true. There's maybe a, a better than not chance that like Nick Saban says, hey, listen, do what you got to do to get so and so player. I don't want to know about it. Or that Nick Saban's just flat out lying and Alabama yeah. does buy players, but there's just no proof of that. Maybe the players and everyone signs NDAs. I don't know. But the fact that like and, and the fact that Jimbo then comes out, despite all the rumors, despite all the speculation, despite all the message board stuff that says, oh, yeah, you know, Lucas, like you said, there was a pot of money. Texas A&M had a very organized collective and they were handing out six figures to get five star players to come to their school. For for Jimbo Fisher to come out and say we didn't buy anybody. Like that to me is also ridiculous. Yeah. Right? When you basically it's basically known that you did. Like people are doing stories on your collective. Like and don't tell me the collective is just going out on their own. And saying, you know what? We're going to offer $150,000 to this four-star running back from Katy, Texas. Like, yeah. no, your, your, your coaches are telling them, hey, we need this money for this kid. Like, we know how this is happening now. But for some reason, the coaches just don't want to admit what's happening. They don't want to say, yeah, listen, like, we're changing kids' lives. Like, we are supporting families. We are very blessed to have a great, you know, donor base, a great boosters. And we're being able to put money in kids' pockets to come play football and generate millions of dollars for our university. Just come out and say that. Yeah. You know, I just I think it's ridiculous how many five stars Nick Saban has signed. And to sit here and say that no money has been exchanged to get those players, I think is ridiculous. And it's I think it's dishonest, quite frankly. Well, and let's be honest. Like, do you really think look People want to play at Alabama because they one, they know it's probably gonna get them in the NFL, you're gonna win a national title, but also, too, it's it's really hold to pull a kid like Bryce Young or another five star recruit out of California and sell them on living in Alabama. Like, let's just let's just go out there or any other place, like small college town, whether it's Starkville, Mississippi, Madison, Wisconsin. Like, it can be sometimes hard to, to pull those guys. They're not just going there just to be there. And I think I think this is kind of it might be a generational thing, but I think you still have coaches that want some level of moral high ground. Like, hey, I don't buy players. We still, there's still a right way, even with NIL, to do things. But I think with NIL, most of us don't really care anymore. We kind of knew that this was happening, and it's kind of a breath of fresh air that at least now we can do it legally. And it's just, I, I don't know, because it's just, it just comes off more fake when people say this type of stuff. Um, then if they were to just kind of, if Nick Saban was just like, yeah, like we've had arrangements. We, we want our players to be rewarded. They should be rewarded. We can use that recruiting. It's great. Uh, Cause that's, I, I just don't think there should be this moral high ground anymore. Um, Cause I don't think really anybody cares, especially in the SEC. Um, it's not like anyone's, you know, uh, trying to lift their head like the, the other way or anything because, Oh, someone's, you know, clutch pearly and they're paying their players now. It's like, who cares? Like it just, to me, it just, it comes off more fake when you're trying to deny what it is you're actually doing. Uh, yeah. Like a hundred percent, you know, like, and, and 
you know, there's a like I've I have a a couple friends that are like, oh, you know, I think with this and and you know the transfer portal, college football is getting ruined, and like, listen, what I've kind of tried to rationalize is like from December to July, like the sport is completely different now. Players transfer in and out, NIL deals. You just kind of have to accept that, and that means you, if that means you cover you follow the sport less in the spring and the summer fine you know one of the one of the the entities i think gets hurt the most on this is like 24 7 and rivals like why would i want to read who who my school's recruiting when they can transfer in a year or some other school could come in at the last minute and offer them a boatload more money because that school missed on their top three guys at that position you know what i'm saying but the saturdays in college football are going to be the same right that's the pageantry, the games, whether you're at the game, like you'll be at Wisconsin week one, whether it's me sitting on my couch for 14 straight hours and, you know, live betting Hawaii, San Jose state, like it's not going to be, it's not going to be any, any different, right? It will be harder to follow players. And, you know, Lucas, like we've talked about like the Jordan Addison thing, right. Uh, You know, just a little bit of a, you know, transition where like Jordan Addison, the Litnikoff winner transfers from Pitt to USC, like, those are things that college football fans are just going to have to get used to. If you have a star player that maybe was under-recruited and was like a three-star player that blows up in his first or second year, the odds are better than not he's going to leave your program to go to a blue blood. It's better for yeah. him. He gets more exposure. He probably gets more money. He's in a better probably environment in terms of either you know, weight room, facility, amenities, pay, whatever it is. You're just going to have to get used to that. And do I like it? No. Do I wish the NCAA had more regulations? Yes. Do I wish there were transfer windows? Yes. Do I wish there were NIL, um, you know, rules is a strong word, but like NIL guidelines? Like, yeah, but there's not. Like, and, and I think eventually things will get, um, things will regress to the mean. I would imagine some of these collectives that are spending millions when their team goes seven and five, yeah. they're going to be like, wait, what? Like when they spend $100,000 to get a recruit and he, injures and he gets injured in the first year or transfers in his first year. I, I I think, I don't think the world we live in right now is permanent, but I think it's here for the next couple of years. And at this point, you just kind of have to get used to it. Yeah. And I think, um, I think something that like we've talked about how, you know, we've already been seeing kind of that, especially with the transfer portal, how much um, it affected college basketball. And now we're kind of seeing it affect college football uh, I think you're just going to have it where lower tier programs like a pit because Pitt can now go if they want to, I don't think Pat Narduzzi is going to do this, but he could be like, Hey, we took Jordan Addison. Uh, and basically he was a low three-star recruit. We made him the best wide receiver in the country. He's now making six figures at USC and is probably going to be draft is going to be drafted in the NFL. He could pitch that same to another player and be like, Hey, like that is an opportunity. We'd love for you to stay at pit. But what we can tell you is we take pride in our development of our players, whether they stay here or not. And that could be a recruiting pitch that lower tier programs start to use now um, to maybe get some recruits, or you can go join uh, another, you know, blue blood and, and compete there, or you can come here and you can well develop for a couple of years and then leave. Yeah, or, you know, even like we say everything trickles down, right? So, like, you lose Jordan Addison to USC, 
maybe you get the first team all Mac receiver from ball state. Yes. Say, Hey, like we can pay you a little bit more, you know, you'll get, it's the same thing. USC selling Jordan Addison. You're selling this kid, yep. you know, and then ball state goes to the FCS all American from like Western Illinois or like Richmond. And it's like, Hey, like, why don't you come join us? Like we just sent a kid to Pitt, you know? So like, I think that's some of the stuff that you're going to see. It's going to be a nightmare for coaches a nightmare. Yes. I, I, you know, it's interesting. This thought just kind of popped into my head, but like we've seen a lot of college basketball coaches leave the sport recently, partly because of the transfer portal NIL. Roy Williams mentioned that like explicit, explicit, explicitly mm-hmm. as like the college basketball that I know and love is kind of gone, which is fine, but it's just not what I'm into. Coach K retiring Jay Wright abruptly retiring as well. I wonder if you'll see some older college football coaches, guys like Nick Saban, right? Uh, Leave the sport and be like, listen, this is just not, I I mean, what does Nick Saban have to prove? If, if Nick Saban is being this vocal, like what, you've got to what seven championships, like just right off into the sunset, man, go run for, (laughs) you know, do whatever you want, man. He could run for Senate in Alabama and probably win. Maybe even running as a Democrat, he might be able to win. Yeah, but what 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 precedent is there of a former high profile football coach running for Senate in Alabama and winning? I guess there is none. I haven't seen it, but he could be the first. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I I just think I I agree. I thought that was a great point you made um, about just yeah, we wouldn't be talking about the Jordan Addison thing if it was Pitt going to get like a guy from Central Michigan or Ball State. Um, but the fact that, you know, Pitt won the ACC last year and is still going to lose their best player. I get it because, um, you know, we see this kind of upward movement, especially a lot in like soccer, but at least in soccer, if a player leaves the lower tier club, you have a boatload of money from a big tier club to help them get better players and everything like that. You don't have that transaction in college football, or at least yet, maybe we get to the point where it's like, Hey, if you lose a guy to a transfer, maybe you get an extra scholarship or something like that so you can get another player in your class. I don't know. Um, but I think it's just – I agree with you completely. I think you're just going to have to adjust as a head coach that you're going to have way more roster turnover than you currently have. And if you don't, you're either going to have to retire or you're probably going to fall behind. Just to kind of circle back to the uh, the Jimbo, Nick Saban – stuff so this is a tweet from Stuart mandel um from about a week ago he said one thing jimbo fisher is better at than any other coach is playing to his base the guy has gone nine and four eight and five and eight and four in three of his first four seasons and is seen as a god why because of exactly like moments like today yeah. and it's so true. It's true like and we've talked about in the past like or in past episodes like this is a huge year for a&m these next two years right we mentioned it back in February. Every single number one recruiting class has gone on to win a national championship. That would be a big jump. It would be a big, big jump for Texas A&M to thrust themselves into the national championship discussion. And it probably starts this year, right? They get Max Johnson from LSU, who's a proven you know, upper-tier SEC quarterback. I think he's an upgrade over Zach Calzada. You get Alabama. Uh, you have to go at Alabama, uh, I should say that. But you beat him last year. Yeah. You know? Um, so this is a big year for Texas A&M. There's a lot of, um, the West, I mean, listen, I think Alabama clearly is the favorite and and obviously we'll touch a lot on this later, but like, just real quick, like 
Alabama's the favorite, but behind that, I mean, Auburn is in flex with with Brian Harson. LSU has a new coach with 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 Brian Kelly. Like Arkansas might be one of the more stable programs in, in the division. <laughs> Ole Miss, something. you know, Ole Miss loses Matt Corral. Like, there's a real chance here for Texas A and M to get some upward momentum. It has to start this year, and you know, the game when they play. I don't know what what um, what date it is, but Alabama and Texas A&M, when they play this year, it's going to be musty TV. That'll be the CBS game of the week. I don't care if I don't care if A&M's two and four, man, and Alabama's six and zero. Oh, like it is going to be the game of the year in that division. October eighth, second week in October. Okay, so what about six weeks into the season? Six five weeks, weeks I believe. Yeah. Interesting. Could could Alabama already have a loss to a Texas based program at that point? Well, how many players are still gonna be out with heat stroke? Yeah. <laughs> you want to uh as we kind of before, before before we move on, is there anything else on the um the the Saban Jimbo that you wanted to get to? I don't think so. I think we pretty much hit on it all. Uh SEC media days are like less than two months out. So uh should be interesting uh, um, those days too. See if they interact at all, and see if we get any more any more further questions. If the, the SEC topic. was smart, so the way SEC does media days is like four days. I think it's in Birmingham or some city in Alabama. Yeah, and there's like four coaches speak every day, or three or four coaches speak every day. If the if the SEC is smart, which they are, I'm betting Jimbo and Saban will be on the same day. I'm betting they will be two of the three or four guys on Monday or Tuesday or like whenever. They'll be back to back too. Yes. Or <laughs> if Nick Saban has that much power, he's like, do not like put Jimbo on Monday, put me on Thursday. I don't even want to like, I don't want to smell his farts if they're still lingering in the hotel. <laughs> All right. So uh, um, we'll move on here to our, our second topic here. And and, and that is some early season. T- uh, I almost said tip off uh, kickoff times and uh, network affiliations for the first three weeks in the season. You can tell we're getting close because we have a little bit more of an understanding of uh, the TV and game schedule for weeks one through three. So I'm, I'm just going to go quickly over and then I'll get Lucas's thoughts on some of the big, uh, the big dates, the big matchups, the big times from the first three weeks. So starting with week one, week one loaded as usual. Um, obviously, a uh, a Thursday slate, not too many good games on Thursday. I know my Arizona State Sun Devils reluctantly play Thursday, which I'm not looking forward to, but it is what it is. Uh, Oregon, Oregon and Georgia from the Mercedes-Benz Superdome will be at 1230. Uh, Utah visits Florida at 4 o'clock on ESPN. Uh, the ABC game of the week, Notre Dame visits Ohio State. That will be a really, really good one. Uh, the Sunday game, I think, is pretty intriguing. Florida State and LSU. Uh, Labor Day night, Clemson and Ugh. Georgia Tech from the Mercedes. I don't know why that what? game is on Labor Day. Just brutal. From the Mercedes-Benz Superdome. Uh, Lucas, when you look at week one, I think immediately what jumps to my mind, Notre Dame, Ohio State is I mean, really, really good week one game. Yes. I mean, C.J. Stroud, Ohio State have a ton of expectations. Notre Dame, the first, I guess, regular season game of the Marcus Freeman era. I'm re- also really intrigued by that Utah and Florida game. I think that game kind of snuck under the radar 
as far as big early season matchups, but a lot of people think Utah might be the favorite in the South, although USC is kind of just all these transfers are coming on strong and Florida first game in the Billy Napier era. What, what stands out about the week one schedule um, and the, the kickoff times? And I'll, I'll preface this by also saying Illinois at Illinois state at Wisconsin, four o'clock Pacific time on FS one. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I was hoping they would move it to a Friday night game. I'll be up there. I'm going to be a Madison that whole week, actually. So really excited. It's at 6 o'clock, which is like a, just a perfect time for a nighttime game. But uh, no, I think one of the biggest takeaways from like the games you mentioned, Utah at Florida, uh, Notre Dame at uh, Ohio State, is I just love the fact they're not these neutral site games either these are both yes. uh yep. utah is playing the game's going to be in the swamp uh notre dame ohio state's going to be in the shoe um going to be great atmospheres for a football game i think it's only the, the fourth time since like the 1950s that ohio state and notre dame are playing each other um it's just great uh great helmets and i think for a team like Utah, obviously Florida, we're not sure what to expect under their first year under Billy Napier. Obviously a really, really down year last season. Um, but Utah was a team last year. Had they been playing the way that they did the last half of the season, we would probably be talking to them as a college football playoff contender. Uh, and returning Cam Rising as their starter, uh, it's just a really intriguing game. Um but another game I'm actually intrigued by staying in in the Big Ten is actually a Thursday night, Thursday night game. Some people might laugh at this, but it's Penn State going on the road in West Lafayette to play Purdue. Um, I think that should be a really, really fun game. Uh, one, it'll be a night game. But two, I think a lot of people forget Purdue actually pretty decent year last year. Went 9-4, and four, won that crazy Music City Bowl against – Tennessee, I think the final score is like 48 to 45 or something like that. Um, and this is an interesting year for Penn State. Uh, the last two years have been extremely disappointing, um, even though I think James Franklin still got another contract extension like he seems to do every <laughs> every year. Uh, but I think that's that's an intriguing game. But just really, really excited to see, um, looking on here on ESPN, seeing that almost every game on week one now has a scheduled time a network that it's going to be on. Um, I'm really, really excited. Um, even I'm even excited to watch Georgia Tech get clocked by Clemson by like 50 points in the Mercedes. Yeah. What a, what a, I mean, what an interesting decision to put that game on, uh, on, uh, on Labor Day. Um, one thing is like, I, I just love how week one shapes up. I mean, you start Thursday, West Virginia, Pitt, Penn state, Purdue, Lucas, like you said, like two really good Thursday games. Mm-hmm. Friday, you have Illinois, Indiana. Uh, TCU plays at Colorado. And then Saturday, I mean, it's it's the 9 a.m. slate's a little weak, to be honest. Like Michigan hosts Colorado State. Um, but then you got, you know, 1230, Oregon, Georgia. That's going to be a really fun one. Cincinnati yeah. visits Arkansas, which is kind of a that's nice under, very under, under, yes, nice yeah, like under the too. radar week one game. That's 1230 Pacific on ESPN. And then. The nightcap, obviously, Utah, Florida, 7 p.m. Eastern, and then at 7.30 Eastern, Notre Dame and Ohio State. So moving on to week two here, this is the week of September 9th and 10th. Uh, the Friday game, Louisville visits UCF. 
the big one here, obviously, Alabama at Texas. And um, I sent you a couple of, uh, of notes during the, uh, the last couple of weeks about how, you know, usually, so Fox, I believe, gets the right to the, their first pick of the Big Ten or the Big 12, like the mm-hmm. game that they want. Usually every year they pick Ohio, they pick Michigan, Ohio State. This year, the question was, do they pick Michigan, Ohio State, or do they pick Texas, Alabama? They went Texas, Alabama. Then the other question was, what time is the game going to be on? Are you going to put an 11 a.m. local kick in September in Austin, Texas? The answer was yes, they will. <laughs> the game is going to be at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on Big Fox, the big noon kickoff. One of the most hyped non-conference matchups in a while. Obviously, Alabama, the, the behemoth in college football, Texas, like Quinn Ewers, likely the starting quarterback, Steve Sarkeesian, second year, a lot of firepower offensively with B. John Robinson and Xavier Worthy. Um, Lucas, just quickly before I toss it over to you, just to recap a little bit, or to, not to recap, but to to look at week two. Week two usually is kind of a downer on the schedule, not a ton of great games. Um, Wake Forest and Vanderbilt's a little intriguing to me. Washington State visits Wisconsin. That's the game after um, Texas and Alabama on Big Fox. Tennessee and Pittsburgh, 1230 on ABC. App State goes to A&M. That could be an interesting one um, as well. USC Stanford is the ABC game at 4 <coughs> time. So, uh, Lucas, like, let's just talk week two, kind of what stands out. Yeah, I think kind of the games you mentioned there. People are going to complain. I feel like we we have this con- This is probably like what the third year in a row we're having this conversation about Fox's uh, big noon kickoff. But hey, it was. I think last year it was, if not the, I think it was the top watched window uh, was. of any was. time slot. So they're not going to stop it. It was a strategy they decided to do because they get that entire time slot. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure it's going to be like 98 degrees and. 85% humidity in Austin, but uh, those fans will be so drunk. They're not going to, they're not going to care, but, uh, uh, but yeah, just some other games. I guess if I'm just being the sicko kind of that I am, I yeah. just kind of looking at some of these matchups. Um, let me see here. Tennessee Pitt um, is another original. That was actually a, a pretty good game last year. I believe Pitt won on the road um, in Knoxville. Um, but Tennessee's an interesting team uh, this year, too. And I'm also looking to see how Pitt responds, one, after losing Jordan Addison, but also one of their best years that they've had probably in, in well over a decade. Um, and then uh, you also got Iowa State, Iowa, the Cyhawk Trophy, which is um, usually pretty close, even though Iowa, I think, has won it seven straight years. Um, and then I think a game for you where you need especially betting redemption for this year is uh, Virginia at Illinois. Ah. I remember. <laughs> uh, I remember last year that was. Uh, I think both of both me and you both had a ton of skin in the game. One on the over, but also on Illinois covering. Uh, it was like United. eleven and a half, twelve, and the final score was forty-two, fourteen. Yes. <laughs> Dead on arrival. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, and that was also a weird game because it was at like ten thirty, I think, Central Time. They played it like eleven thirty uh, Eastern, but um, but no, those are those are kind of the games. ASU, Oklahoma State, 
I think is uh, another interesting game. Don't know what your take is on that with ASU going to Stillwater on week two. Um, but uh, what I like about week two is like week two is almost like the irrelevant power five matchup week. Yes. Like Mississippi State at Arizona, Arizona State at Oklahoma State. You've got Northwestern at Duke, Wake Forest at Vanderbilt, Missouri at Kansas State, Virginia at Illinois. <laughs> like it's it's like a lot of these like middle tier teams are like, all right, week one is our FCS opponent or our, our whatever, you know, G5 opponent. Week two, before conference play, we're, we're going to play our, our other kind of mandatory power five game. And we get a lot of weird, uh, but kind of cool matchups. Like I think Wake yeah. Forest Vanderbilt's kind of interesting. I think Missouri, Kansas State's interesting. Tennessee Pitt, like you mentioned, is is interesting. You got the Cyhawk. Um, and then some of the other games that I mentioned, like, listen, Arizona State should beat NAU. Um, ASU, in the time that we since recorded, picked up Emory Jones, the transfer from uh, Florida. So he will presumably be their starting quarterback uh, next year. So at least they have somebody with college football experience. I do not expect ASU to be competitive against Oklahoma State. I think that's, again, Oklahoma State every year will just pencil in eight and four, nine and three. And then every yeah. four years, they'll go 10 or 11 wins. So I think they're much better than ASU. Um, I'm, I'm also interested, like, you look at some of how these, how these non-conference schedules stack up. Like, Arizona has to play at San Diego State week one. Then week two, they host Mississippi State. And then they play uh, North Dakota State week three. Like, oh, brutal, man. I mean, Pitt, like, I believe um, Pitt week one plays West Virginia. Week two plays Tennessee. Like, what? brutal. I just don't know. Like, if you're just trying to be, like, smart, especially if you're, you're Arizona, like, your goal should be easiest route possible to get to a bowl game. Um, you know why, Lucas? Yeah. Because they're scheduled a decade in advance. <laughs> like, how are you supposed to know? But it's like you're Arizona. It's not like, it's not like. I mean, they had a couple good years under Richrod, but it wasn't like they were they were this powerhouse for five years. Where they're like, okay, let's just start scheduling harder now. Um, no schedule Arizona. My goodness, I also saw the suit, and I get they have to, but it's Kent State. I think they play at Washington week one, and then they play at Oklahoma their second week. Um, yeah. So that's why they're going to probably go undefeated in the MAC, but they're still going to be like eight and four because um, they they just play a, a brutal schedule. But interesting note too: North Carolina goes to Georgia State um, week two too. So just interesting to see. And anytime I see a Power Five, at least like a respectable Power Five program, yeah. go on the road to a small school, kudos to them for doing it. But uh, interesting, interesting nonetheless. So moving on to week three, Saturday, September 17th, you know, week three, I think has always been a traditional down week in college football. It's usually the week before conference play kicks up, but some pretty interesting matchups here. Um, Oklahoma is going to play Nebraska in a game, which Nebraska will lose by four points and, and, <laughs> and have, will miss three field goals. And they'll blame it on the, the balloon. Uh, the balloon's <laughs> not going off. So Oklahoma hosts, uh, Oklahoma goes on the road to Nebraska. Um, You've got Penn State at Auburn, which is the big SEC game of the week on CBS. Ole Miss at Georgia Tech, uh, 1230 Pacific time on ABC. Colorado visits Minnesota, also 1230 Pacific on ESPN2. 
Um, Michigan State visits Washington. That'll be on ABC at 7.30 Eastern. Uh, how about Miami at Texas A&M? That's a late kickoff in Kyle at Kyle Field, 6 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Central Time. So some some interesting games in uh, in week three. I think Penn State and Auburn will be interesting. I think Miami, Texas A&M is interesting. Michigan State going on the road against Washington. So week three presents us with some games that we don't normally get. Yeah. BYU at Oregon, too. Um, uh, another good one. Um, but, yeah, and you get some SEC games in there as well. Um, no, it's interesting. I mean, the – the only thing with these first three weeks is usually you kind of get like kind of sprinkles here and there of, of windows where you do get some of these nice non-conference games. Um, but yeah, it's, it, and it's interesting match too. I think going, you know, just even looking to a random like Cal at Notre Dame, Vanderbilt at Northern Illinois, um, Northern Illinois won the Mac. So if Fandy could potentially, I mean, an SEC team should always beat a Mac team. But uh, that could be a good step in the right direction if uh, if Vandy's able to, to go on the road to DeKalb. But, no, uh, interesting sprinkle. You mentioned, you know, Oklahoma at Nebraska. I mean, Nebraska gave themselves every chance to win that game in Norman last year. Uh, I'm sorry, Lucas. You could take away the in Norman and just say Nebraska gave themselves a chance to win every game last year. True. You would also That's be true. <laughs> Um, so this will be really the, the first big test for Nebraska. Well, I should say that their second big pep test. They got to they gotta beat Northwestern Week in zero, baby. Dublin. I saw I saw average tickets in Dublin right now are going for $240. Wow. So they must be getting either a ton of Nebraska fans, which is probably the likelihood. Probably a ton of Nebraska fans are making that trip. Or who knows? Maybe there's just a big Nebraska following in uh, in Ireland <laughs> or Northwestern or Northwestern. Uh, but uh, but no, still uh, an interesting slate in there. I don't know if it's as strong as the uh, previous few weeks, but Miami Texas A and M to me is probably the most intriguing game that week, just because. But this is Miami's first big test for for Mario Cristobal. Um, even though I think they also do. Um, they do they do uh, i thought maybe they went to michigan state this year but it doesn't look like that they are doing that but um you know their first big test under mario cristobal uh we'll get into them a little bit later when we talk about kind of last year's performance but um michigan state at washington i think is also another intriguing game because washington's another one of those teams i think severely underperformed and i think with better coaching we could see a potentially much better team than we did a year ago out of washington yeah, for sure, for sure. We are uh, we're getting close, man. We are we're getting close. I expect win totals to be out here pretty soon. We'll dive through those hopefully, hopefully next month or the next couple of weeks. It'll, it'll be fun. So, um, one kind of interesting development that's happened the last couple of weeks is conferences seemingly waking up and going divisionless at least to determine a conference champion. So the Pac-12 kind of abruptly just said, "Yeah, we're still going to have divisions for scheduling purposes." But we are no longer going to make divisions. One, the the first place team from each division gets a chance to play in the in the, the conference championship game. So they have eliminated that for this year, twenty twenty two. I believe, from what I read, Lucas, correct me if I'm wrong, because this may have slipped under my radar. But 
ACC and Big Ten likely eliminating divisions or at least going trending that way for as early as 23? Yeah, so I know that's been the topic at the Big Ten. I think the ACC has pretty much already stated that's the likelihood is the case is they're going to get rid of divisions and do kind of like a a three five five model where each team will have three permanent uh, conference members that they'll play every year, and then they'll just slip out the other five each year because um, they're likely just going to stay at at eight conference games. Um, the Big Ten has already stated that they will be staying at nine for the foreseeable future. Um, I think they're going to move to pods. They've already, uh, they already have the conference schedules out until I think like 2026. So I don't know if that's going to be an issue at all, but it's also a big deal because the big 10 reups their media rights deal after this season. So I'm sure they want to have some type of idea in place you know, while they're talking to these TV networks. But I think they're also going to go to a pod system. They know how um, lopsided the divisions are right now. Um, And I think they know that that hurts them for the college football playoff because a lot of times the two best teams are not playing in the championship game. Um, I guess I was just really, really surprised that the Pac-12 was just like, we're starting that this year. Um, You know, we're... Divisions will still be in place for scheduling purposes, but really the standings aren't going to matter this year. What was your take on them saying they're going to do that immediately? Yeah, I was shocked. I mean, because usually, you know, college football, everything's so slow in college football, right? Like we're used to like, all right, playoff expansion. We're going to table it till 2026. And like, oh, ASU and and LSU are going to play a series in 2044. We're not used to like things happening right away. And yeah. The fact that the Pac-12 is just like, yeah, we're done with this. And, you know, listen, they have a new conference commissioner. Maybe this is one of his big objectives and big passion projects. And it's like, if USC is the second best team in the South, we need USC in the title game. I That could easily be it. Because um, I, I do think the two best teams in the Pac-12 on paper heading into this year are Utah and USC. Um, and I, I, I just think especially the, the, the Pac-12 – there's been some conference imbalance recently. Like there just has, whether it's like an eight win UCLA winning the South or like a, a, a bad Colorado team making the, the college football championship game or a Pac-12 championship game a couple years ago. Like Pac-12 has been plagued by this a little bit. And I, and I, and, and I think the Pac-12 is just looking for a bit of a, of a jolt, looking for a, a, a bit of energy in, into this conference. You've got to do something. You have to do yeah. something. And I, I respect it. I respect the, the immediacy. Um, I was surprised by it for sure. I did not expect it that the Pac-12 is this like trendsetter. Like that's not been the the mo of, <laughs> of the conference recently. So um, again, my team I expect to be pretty darn bad next year. So I do not think it matters. Like if this were last year, like great. Oh my god, like we got a chance. To, like I think it it opens you up. I, I think in a in a in a conference like the ACC, it's it's huge, right? Because the ACC, for the most part, has been dominated by one team. Yeah. So if you're NC State, if you're Wake Forest, if you're Florida State, if you're a team in that Atlantic that in years past you've been the second-best team, and you're just seeing all these teams rotate from the Coastal, making the conference championship game and getting crushed by Clemson, this has to be huge news for you. Like any team in the Atlantic, this is great news. If you're Virginia, Virginia Tech, Duke, Miami, like you're like, oh, no, we don't have as, as easy of a shot to yeah. that conference championship game. 
So that's not as much of an issue in the Pac-12 as it is in like the ACC, but or you know, Lucas, for you as a as a fan of a team in the quote unquote weaker division, I mean, what was what 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 are your kind of thoughts on the the Big Ten going away? I'm fine with it. I'm honestly very fine with it. Um, just because one, I think the Big Ten West, and I think a little bit unfairly so, has just become like a giant punchline because the East um, has been good. Um, or I should say, really, Ohio State has been magnificently good, and then Michigan last year. That um, I just think I think it's better for the conference as a whole. For me, from a scheduling perspective, too, like I want to be playing those teams more often. Um, I do like the divisions and the fact that you do ever you 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 do know who you're going to play every year, and you kind of create some like divisional rivalries. But to me, as long as we're playing. Iowa in Minnesota every year. Like I, I wanted, I want more flexibility to be able to play Ohio state or Michigan in those. Cause just as a fan, like I want, I, it drives me nuts when I kind of get outside fans are like, well, you guys have the easy route every year. That's why you guys win 10 to 11 games. And it kind of annoys me, but I would, I want to play those teams more. And I think, um, we're not going to have these discussions like when Wisconsin made, they were undefeated in the big 10 championship game back in 2017. The biggest knock on them was, well, they came out of the West. Are they really the best team in the big 10 where now it's like, okay, well, if you do this, you're going to put the two best teams every single year. And, you know, looking back to at the PAC 12, I think they said if they had this alignment since the PAC 12 championship game was created, the matchups would have changed, I think, like five times, five out of the eleven times the matchups yes. would have been would have been different. So I think it's a positive moving forward, not just for the Big Ten, the Pat, but I think for college football as a whole. Um, and I think it's just going to provide us better matchups for for championship games, especially if we move to a twelve team playoff. I think the if especially if we have automatic bids, I think people are going to be less worried about you know, that the case that an eight and four, you know, Purdue team knocks off uh, in a, a 12 and 0 Ohio state in one game, and then they get an automatic bid to the playoff. I think it'll end kind of those fears. Um, if this comes to fruition. Well, yeah. I also wonder though, if, if you're a fan of a team that has ruled the sport, right? If you're a fan of Ohio state, if you're a fan of Oklahoma probably doesn't really apply here, but like, you know, Michigan won the Big Ten title game over Iowa, like what, forty-two to seven this year? Yeah, they're like, forty-two to three, I think. I don't in a in a in a different, um, I believe, if if the if divisions weren't in play last year, Ohio State Michigan would have been the rematch, right? Yes. So Michigan then would have had a harder. So I I kind of think it's a double-edged sword, right? Because I do think sometimes if you're the twelve and zero team and you're already in and it's just a win and in. You would love to play that eight and fourteen. How many times has Clemson played a, a you know nine and three Virginia or a, yeah you know like whatever team in the ACC title game just rolled them and they get a nice not like it's a buy but you get an easier time than having to play a ten and two Florida State team for example. No, I think that's a good point, and especially the the Michigan Ohio State game because you know they're going to play each other like back to back, potentially yeah. playing each other back to back weeks. Um, and that game is obviously already such a battle, especially like, yeah, like you mentioned that like Michigan, like you just got over that emotional hump of beating Ohio state, basically knocking them out. And then if there was the case, like, Oh crap, we have to play them again. 
and on a neutral site uh, to potentially get a bid at a at a at a playoff. I can see how it does that. Um, but then again, you're not really going to get sympathy from me towards like blue bloods. Like, no, you're not. Yeah. Whatever. If if you're that great of a program, it shouldn't matter. Uh, everyone else has to go through <laughs> this route as well. So, um, and I think it'll just help them because it's another resume building win. Especially if you can say we beat a top ten team two weeks in a row, even if it happens to be the same two. Um, one real quick, just to wrap it up. I I, I love the pod system. I mean, I think it's such a clean way. Like, if, if you assume that there are four teams in a pod or three teams in a pod, like, you play the other two or three teams in your pod, then you play the teams from another pod. And you play, basically, a different pod every year. And it's just such a clean way. I mean, some of these – I mean, it's not so much in the Big Ten, but when you're in the SEC and the ACC and you have eight, seven teams in your division – and you play one permanent crossover game, that means like you're getting one game every six years against yep. another team in a different division. Mm-hmm. Right. It means like Alabama and Georgia play once every, I think seven years, basically. Yeah. Right. And it's just like, it's, it's to me, it's ridiculous. That's why you had wake and North Carolina schedule like a non-conference game. Cause they weren't going to play for seven years. Yeah. You know? Nope. So I, I just think it's a really clean way. I think there are, it's pretty easy to break them up. You have three or four teams in a pod and you play those teams every year. And then the rest you play every, every couple of years. No, I agree. And just coming from, uh, from just a business perspective, like networks will pay more to have those games. Like if you can guarantee, Hey, you're going to get, you know, Alabama, I think that was the first time they played at the swamp since like 2011 or 2012 or something like that. So you go almost a decade without visiting well, uh, one of the, the best atmospheres in college football. Like, yeah, if, now, if you can guarantee that those matchups are going to happen more often, uh, like ESPN, those networks are going to pay more money to have that happen. Um, especially if the SEC, from what it sounds like, when they add Texas and Oklahoma, it sounds like they're going to also add a conference game too um, and go to nine. Um, so that also gets rid of, you know, probably that one FCS opponent that they play every year. And instead, oh, you're going to get Oklahoma and, uh, and uh, in Georgia, potentially, instead. Like, it's just better for college football. It's better for the fans. I think it's just it's just better for the sport overall, which is sometimes we can rarely say that one solution is best for the entire sport. Um, all right. So we're going to jump into coaching hire uh, recap. Um, you know, typically after every coaching cycle, we give A, B, C, D, like whatever. And I never thought that's fair. I think we should always look back three or four years in the past and grade hires from that cycle because you have some data to say, how did that coach do? So Lucas went ahead and kind of broke down in the three tiers, the 2019 coaching hires. So Lucas, I'll let you take the floor and kind of go through your process and touch on anyone you want to touch on first and I'll, I'll jump on, but. Go ahead. The floor is yours. Yeah. yeah. So basically the, the three criteria we had were kind of like the duds. So those that just completely kind of fell flat, got fired, completely were under expectations. We have still waiting, um, which are, you know, we're as it says, we're still waiting to see if these coaching hires are going to work out. And then we have obviously our successes, those that have done really, really well and are continuing to do really, really well. And, I guess we'll just kind of start with 
with just kind of the, the duds. And I, I'm just going to kind of go over maybe some of those that were, I thought were going to work out and just completely fell on their face. The first one, I think, I know he hasn't gotten fired yet, but I think Jeff Collins, the experiment there has just been a complete dud so far. You knew this was going to be a rebuild going from the triple option offense that they had under Paul Johnson to, you know, Jeff Collins wanted to kind of more modernize Georgia Tech and, you know, he had a lot of momentum, but it's year three. They have only had three wins in each of his three years. He's nine and 25. Um, and even like last year, they had one big win. I think they beat North Carolina. Um, but otherwise, it's just been. They're still getting, I think they got clocked by almost like 50 against Georgia last year. That uh, Georgia versus Georgia Tech, that gap has probably never been wider um, in that rivalry's history. And I just think uh, that one has just completely, he's still there for year four. Maybe they turn around this year. They probably got to go to a bowl game at minimum for him to stay there. Um and then just kind of going on a disaster, less miles. I didn't necessarily think this was a great hire, but I don't think anyone could have foresaw how terrible both on the field and off the field. He only made it Brutal. Um, basically two seasons, three and 18. They didn't even win a game. His last, I think they went 0 and 9 in 2020 uh, under less miles. The roster from what has been told was just left in awful shape. They even have a full scholarship number. Um, they kind of cut corners to kind of build their roster. And then obviously the terrible off the field allegations that, uh, that kind of came out of all of this, um, stemming back to when he was at LSU and they ended up having to fire him basically after the recruiting cycle was all over. I think it was like in March or April that they finally fired him, uh, in, in 2021 and you had to bring in a new coach and I you hope, uh, you know, can re- revitalize things. But I think uh, those kind of two stick out on here for me. Any any duds on there for you? Well, the one thing that I do think is interesting, and we'll, we'll get to your successes, but look at how many Power 5 coaches from that cycle turned out to be duds, right? Yes. Jeff Collins, Les Miles, we had Manny Diaz on here, Matt Wells at Texas Tech. You only have two Power 5 coaches on your successes, Mm -hmm. Uh, section, which we'll get to. I'm not going to give it away. But I think that just goes to show how hard it is to get these hires right at major schools. It is really hard. I give Georgia Tech credit for sticking with with Jeff Collins. Um, Nine and 25. Brutal. One of the hardest jobs just, I mean, it's a little bit like Auburn where Auburn has to play Alabama and Georgia every year. Georgia Tech has to play Georgia and Clemson every year. (laughs) I mean, talk about a short straw. You already played Georgia every year, and then out of the Atlantic, you get Clemson. Like That's really difficult. Now, on the plus side, you're in mate, one of the most fertile recruiting grounds in the country. You're in Atlanta, yes. Georgia. Like You are in a place where theoretically, like Miami or like Texas, like you don't have to leave your state or your city to get – you can fill you up your recruiting class with just guys from Georgia. Um, so – but listen, I, I, I agree. They just lost Jamar Gibbs, their best player at Alabama. They're running back. So I don't have a ton of high hopes there. I wanted to touch on Manny Diaz. Um, this is what you wrote about Manny Diaz. 21 and 15. This is a hard one. Only lasted three years and might still be there for a fourth had there not been some close losses in 2021. Three losses by three points or less, including a, a missed field goal. 
uh, at the end of regulation against Virginia, a three-point loss to Florida State. I'll even go one step further and be like, if Mario Cristobal isn't willing to go to Miami and leave yeah. Oregon, like Manny Diaz is still the head coach there. Mm-hmm. Like it's, 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 <laughs> I know you theoretically can't put it in the successes or the still waiting category. Cause he's, he's been fired. Um, but it's like, it's so hard to call it a dud. Like I thought his, I mean, he got a great quarterback in there, Tyler Van Dyke. I think the program is set up for some success in, in year one re- recruited at a decent pace. Um, and I, I, I kind of feel like Mario Cristobal is going to reap a lot of the rewards about the foundation that Manny Diaz built. Um, and obviously we know we've talked about like the U with their medical school and the money that COVID brought in are going to really pump up the resources for Mario. But I thought the interesting one was Manny Diaz. Matt Wells fired. Um, the team went five and three. Gary Anderson as well. You have on here. I'm just I'm just going to touch on a little bit on some of the, the um, some of the other schools. Most of them power fives like Tom Tom Arth from Akron three and twenty four fired. Scott Loeffler seven and twenty two. Mel Tucker is an interesting one. Hired for one season at Colorado, goes five and seven, then gets the Michigan State job. Yeah. And <laughs> literally in the middle of year two at Michigan State, gets one of the biggest contracts in coaching history, and prompts. James Franklin to get a contract extension prompts the big money at um, LSU with Brian Kelly. So like Mel Tucker is a very influential name on this list for a guy that up until last year really hadn't accomplished a ton. So those are my thoughts on, uh, on the duds. Yeah. And I was going to say, I only put them on there just because more for Colorado. It's like, you just hired a head coach that you thought would be your guy to build your program has the highest ranked recruiting class I think they had in like the recruiting ranking period and then leaves. Like well uh, and like he also left in like February, I think, right? Because yes. like Mark like Mark D'Antonio retired, I think, after signing day. Yes. In 2019, 20, 2020. 20, yeah. I think it would have been early 2020, 2020 yeah. yeah. Um so that basically all their best candidates were were gone and basically they got Carl Durrell. We had a good first year, but we'll see how that one goes. Yeah, it'll be funny because if we do these rankings next year, uh, Mel Tucker will go from a dud to probably a, a success, a, a success <laughs> next year for Michigan State. So, um, and I like how you mentioned Manny Diaz because that was the one I had trouble with. The only reason I put him as a dud was because he got fired. But you know, you look at their schedule. If they beat Florida State, they lost, I believe, in that game on a last second touchdown. If they beat Florida State. Not only did they end, they would have ended the season eight and four on six straight wins, and then with Tyler Van Dyke, maybe they, they probably still go after Cristobal because I think that's who they truly wanted all along. But... I think the, I, I think the big money boosters there just wanted Cristobal, and Small, I don't yeah. think fans of like a ten win season anything. If Cristobal wanted to go, that was his job. Yeah, and, and we talk about the close losses, but I mean, you could also look at it too. They only beat App State by two points. They only, they barely beat, they beat NC, NC State by only one. They only beat Pitt by four. They only beat Georgia Tech, who we just talked about, by three points at home, too. So as much as they had close losses, they, they also had, they had a very low margin for error even last year as a, as a seven and five team. Um, all right. And then going on uh, to the still waiting, a um, couple of ones, I think, the one that I, I almost put him down as, as 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 a success was Mac Brown, just because from where he took them from year one, year two, they made it to the Orange Bowl, were ACC contenders. 
I just think last year they were – I know they lost a ton on offense besides Sam Howell, but really disappointing. You know, they finished the year 6-7, and seven, uh, a losing record, um, and losing to teams like Georgia Tech last year. They got absolutely crushed in the Georgia Dome. You know, that being said on Mac Brown, I think they had a top 10 recruiting class this past year. They've recruited really well since he's gotten down there. I do expect them to have a bounce back year, but still waiting to see on there. Um, same with uh, uh, with like a guy like Neil Brown, who had so much success at Troy. Um, didn't inherit a lot at West Virginia. Um, they've still gone to two straight bowl games, but they haven't won more than six games um, in the three years that he's been there. West Virginia, look, they kind of know what they are, but I think they also expect to be a lot more competitive in the Big 12, um, especially with how drastically it's going to change here in 2023 when you're going to have four new teams joining the conference and then pretty soon with Oklahoma and Texas leaving. I think they still believe that they can compete year in and year out for that. So that's not a lot of wait and sees um, on there. Uh, any of those other ones on there uh, that stuck out to you? Yeah, I mean, Scott Satterfield's really kind of an interesting one, right? I mean, looks really good year one, and then the flirtation with, uh, what was it, Baylor? Was it Virginia Tech? What was it that... Um, what was it? it was South Carolina. South Carolina, thank you. Yeah. And after that, like, the fan base was done with him. Like, I, we had talked about it. he might get fired because it got out very publicly that he met with South Carolina officials before the 2021 season and, um, or before the 20, yeah, for the uh, 21 season. And um, I don't know if it's ever, we're going to recover. Um, it will be really, really interesting. I think the Cardinals need to go seven five, eight and four for him to feel pretty good. He's, he's 18 yeah. and 19 in three years. I think the, the big thing that stuck out to me was you got a lot of coaches around 500 in this group, right? Satterfield 18 and 19, Neil Brown, 17, 18. Mac Brown, 21 and 17. Mike Loxley is kind of an interesting one, 13 and 23, but just went to a bowl game. Uh, they were really stable last year. They've, he's recruited pretty well, especially in that DMV area. Um, Will Healy, I think, is an interesting name at Charlotte because he's been a very like hot candidate for a couple years yes. now, and I don't know if it's really come to fruition. I don't know if we've like we've talked about missing your window before. I don't know if he's missed his window. Um, but it will be interesting to see as they kind of, like you say on the sheet, going to the American Athletic Conference in 2023. That's kind of a big step up for them. Yes. So it'll be interesting to see. And then I, I just love Jake Spavitzal, 9 and 27, still <laughs> keeping his job. God bless. God bless. Hey, best wins they've had in like eight, I think like seven seasons, four wins yeah. was. So, um, yeah, it was uh, – I remember that was a, a pretty big deal. He was the – offensive coordinator at West Virginia before taking that job. And before that, he was the offensive coordinator with someone at, at a and uh, I think he was there the year that they had Manziel or the year after. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's tough job, Texas State. So that's why I had a 9-27 and guy as, uh, as still waiting. <laughs> All right, um, your successes. Successes. So some of these were, uh, were pretty interesting. One uh, – was a one and done. That was Eli Drinkowitz. I considered him a success at, at App State. He, now he took over for Scott Satterfield there, program that was already in really good shape. Um, had performed well, especially transitioning from FCS to FBS. Um, was competing every year for Sun Belt titles. Um, but his one year, 12 and one, 
Um, they won 12 games. They won the Sun Belt that year. And he was like, this is good enough. And uh, got the first Power 5 job offered to him. Is now at Mizzou. Um, Jim McElwain, I think, is an interesting one. That I don't think we, we hear too much. Everyone talks a lot about you know how he kind of uh, fizzled out at Florida those last few years. But Central Michigan was a mess. They were a one-win team before he took over. They immediately won uh, nine. I think they went eight and six. Um, the next year went to the MAC title game and then they won nine games last year and beat Wazoo. Um, it was a weird bowl because they were actually filling in because Wazoo's opponent got COVID. Um, so they just took the next team up because central Michigan's game. I think that was the, the barstool bowl in Tucson, their opponent got COVID. So they just matched these two teams together and they ended up winning, um, and, uh, yeah, and I think Ryan Day is another one. Obviously, he inherited a very good situation at Ohio State. But I think, obviously, to keep that level, I mean, the guy didn't lose his first Big Ten game until last year against Michigan. Um, that was his first conference loss. 34-4 and has already led them to a national title game. I think has, has made them offensively, I think, a lot more dynamic. They were already pretty dynamic under Urban. But I think with his NFL background, working under Chip Kelly, we've already seen what he's done with with Justin Fields, uh, but also with, um, you know, I believe he was there with, you know, Dwayne Haskins. I think he was his quarterback coach. Uh, and then now we're seeing it with C.J. Stroud. Uh, just think uh, he's been uh, a really interesting guy. And then also just to highlight too, Thomas Hammock uh, over at Northern Illinois, um, first couple of years were not great. I think he was five and seventh and zero oh and six. I remember listening to the Cover Three podcast and uh, when they were doing their over unders for win totals for the year. I think Northern Illinois was like two and a half, and most guys on that podcast were taking the under. <laughs> it was not expected to be a good year, and yep. they end up winning. Uh, uh, they end up winning the MAC itself. Um, and I love Thomas Hammock. He was a running backs coach for Wisconsin for a number of years. Um, really cool to see him get an opportunity at his alma mater uh, in Shine. But uh, any other uh, people on there that kind of stick out to you, Ryan? Yeah, I, I, I think the Ryan Day conversation is in, really interesting because when I was looking at this and I said, you know, listen, Ryan Day has been incredible but has not won a national championship. And yeah. I don't know if you can consider it a success at Ohio State if you haven't sure. won a national championship. But, you know <laughs> – hasn't lost lost one conference game that was the last one to Michigan like hard to call it a failure hard hard to call it a huge success they just haven't been able to get over the hump and compete with the elite of the elite of the sport they are they have been in the three years under day pretty leaps and bounds above any big 10 team maybe sans Michigan last year um, but haven't been able to compete they lost in the national championship uh, in 2020 to Alabama Last year, they won a crazy Rose Bowl game against um, Utah. Utah, thank you. And I think in his first year, they went to the play the playoff and lost in the semis to, I want to say Clemson, Clemson or, or Ohio State. Um, so, you know, not, not terrible results, but I feel like he has just sustained that program and developed quarterbacks for sure. Justin Fields, first-round draft pick. CJ Stroud, likely first-round draft pick. Like, we, we, we get that. Um, I wonder, and, and listen, Ryan Day is always a popular NFL candidate. And I don't True. think, 
usually that's not for nothing. Like if is his name gets out there, that's usually not just by coincidence. So it's interesting. Will be interesting. Like if I give you over under four and a half more years for Ryan Day as Ohio State's coach, check the I under the over. Under. I think to me, he feels like a guy who once he wins a national title at Ohio State, probably is like, okay, I proved I can win at the highest level here. Yeah. Now, because I mean, we heard his name a bunch, especially for the Bears opening, just because obviously with Justin Fields being there. Um, whew, that's a that's a good one. Four and a half. I'll take the under. I would take the under. I think regardless if he wins a national championship, I think I remember I said earlier in the pod, like, I wonder if you'll see some coaches leave college. I wonder if Ryan Day is like, listen, you know, I don't have to recruit. Um, I, I have the offensive mind everyone's looking for and in the NFL. Like, granted, he might take a pay cut in the NFL at this point. Sure. Um, I, well, I would take the under as well. And the thing I always say, too, is with some of these guys at these top programs, especially if Dave is there for another three years, let's say they do win a national title. If he goes to the NFL, even if he flunks, he's going to have his pick of the litter then for top-tier jobs, kind of like uh, Chip Kelly did, kind of like you know Jim Harbaugh, even though we knew he was going to Michigan. Nick Saban, when he left the NFL, obviously uh, fell nicely to Alabama. So um, I always can see why that allure is there for those. But, no, it'll be uh, interesting to see uh, see him, if, yeah, if he stays there longer. Because he's got a good thing. So – it definitely would be hard to leave. And I like how you mentioned too, like could probably pay him more at Ohio state than an NFL yeah, team. Yeah, probably could. So yeah, man, this was uh it's interesting to look back and just see how hard it is at the power five level to get this right. And yeah. I don't know if it's the culture of, if you don't win in your first two years, we're going to fire you. If you don't win enough, we're going to fire you. The, the pressure. I do think starting with the transfer portal, which was kind of right around this class. But now it feels like it's so much easier to get good early, right? Like I, I think USC is going to win the South this year and probably win, win, win the Pac-12 because Lincoln Riley has hit the transfer portal incredibly hard. They brought in the best quarterback in the country and the best, well, one of the best quarterbacks in the country and the best receiver in the country. Like that doesn't happen five years ago. So um. Like, I wonder if, if Jeff Collins takes over at Georgia Tech now and he can use the transfer portal to bring in 18 new players his first year. Like, is he 9-25? and 25? Like, these are some of the questions that are are He's 10-24. Inter- He's 10-24. Apologies. Apologies. <laughs> no, no, no. He'll be, I think, with the transfers, he, he'd be 10-24. He'd be 10-24. Okay, yeah. yeah you know, maybe, they, maybe they don't lose to an FCS opponent week one. <laughs> Oh man! All right. Anything else to uh, to you want to touch on here before we wrap up? Uh, just the fact that to me, I still think it's kind of crazy that Jamie Chadwell. I had him on our successes. Still kind of crazy to me that he did not get any jobs this year. Um, though I know he is pretty comfortable at Coastal. Um, I would be shocked if he is um, if he is not at a Power Five gig next year. I would agree. I would agree for sure. For sure. Alrighty, it's gonna do it for another episode of Run It for the Roses. Lucas and I will be back in another couple weeks and uh, with some more college football content as we near the starts of the 2022 regular season. For Lucas Rody, I'm Ryan Baffle. Lucas, have a good night and stay frosty.
Robot. 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 Robot.